Blog Talk Radio. Chatting with Sherry. Today we welcome back award-winning composer, producer, educator, and host, David Ritkin. We're going to talk about his music, his inspiration, and his muse. Here's David. Sherry, it's great to be back. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm somehow managing to keep busy with all of the many things that uh, are uh, working to keep me at home. I, I, I still manage to uh, get out both virtually and in uh, in real life. Have you done any of those virtual museum tours? They are so cool. There's one of the Louvre that is yes. to die for. And they they have a new one for the Smithsonian that's going to be coming out. That is, I'm looking forward to that so much because I love that place. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. In fact, one of my friends uh, helps uh, create artificial humans to act as AI guides for those virtual tours. So it, it's actually a, a, a big high-tech thing, uh, virtual museum tours. Um, <laughs> that was my – did you read the book Origin by Dan Brown? Yes, yes. You know the, the guide in the, in the yeah, book? Yeah. Every time I hear, like, a virtual guide, it pops into my head. How real are you? (laughs) Is that guy or uh, the uh, AI librarian, if uh, you saw the uh, more recent version of uh, uh, the time machine? Yeah. Yeah, that was a cool – I still – I have such – my heart belongs to the uh, first one with Rod Taylor. I'm sorry. Rod Taylor is so charismatic and – 
It has the George Powell animation, which is, you know, not just the best. Yeah. So that's my favorite. But they didn't have that's an AI uh, librarian. So the, that's why I was mentioning it. Well, like the cool part about reality. that is they did a they did a nod to the Rod Taylor thing, which was nice because they didn't do that in other movies when they remade them. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, uh, we're more meta than they were back then. Yeah, but I love the Rod Taylor version. I mean, I I just I've loved it since I was a little girl. It just it's mm-hmm. it's just it has such hope. We my father used to make it a learning point that when um oh my god, I blanked out on this name. His best friend played by a really brilliant actor character actor and I blanked out on his name. Anyway, when he asked the maid um what books you would take, books were missing, we my dad would make it a learning point and say, Okay, what books would you guys take? Yeah. That, I mean, that's how in my head that movie is. <laughs> well, that's actually a really good kind of game. Uh, it, it could also be like a, a, a school thing to have as education, but it could just be fun, you know, it's kind of like uh, Desert Island Discs. So, you know, what books would you take to the future? fantasy score by uh, a guy named Russ Garcia, who's uh, not so famous nowadays, but he worked on some wonderful movies. Recognize, is it, can you tell me some of the movies? Because I don't recognize the name. Uh, let's see. Um, well, he worked with George Powell on The Time Machine and on uh, Atlantis. Uh, let's see. Uh he also worked on uh, TV westerns like Rawhide and uh, Laredo, which were you know huge hits at the time. And uh, I'm trying to uh, find out other stuff. Um, I think he was the uh, the person who uh, did the the music for Charlie Chaplin's uh, uh, late film Limelight. So oh, uh, those wow. are some of the the, the things that. He worked on, you know, a diverse kind of uh, career. Um, not necessarily the uh, the most famous guy, uh, but he worked on some amazing, cool projects, if that makes sense. Oh, um, yeah. Time Machine and Limelight, those are great movies. Yes, yes. Oh, uh, and uh, he also worked with Although a bunch I, of other, I, you know, people. I think Limelight, is, I love it because I was brought up watching films, but I, 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 I don't know how many people know that Chaplin film because it's it's such a different type of movie, you know, with also, Chaplin. It's a, it's a very serious movie. Yeah, it's a serious movie, and it's got dialogue. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, spoken yeah, dialogue. Yeah, it was one of the few that he actually did dialogue, That The Great Dictator in Limelight. And a little tiny bit in, um, what's the name of it? Modern. Modern Times? Modern Times. 
He had a little bit yes. of dialogue in that, mostly the boss yelling at him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, to me, pure cinema is moving pictures and music. And all the other elements are so important and they can carry a scene. But that's the core basic of cinema. You can have a moving image and music. And you've got cinema. <laughs> so uh, a dialogue can be amazing, but you can have a good movie with no dialogue. And visual effects uh, can be amazing, but you can have a good movie without visual effects. That's true. Did you know that in Limelight, Buster Keaton directed the part where Charlie Chaplin dies because he couldn't die and direct himself? And he was the only person he trusted to direct it? That's interesting. Wow. I, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, it was part of a documentary about Buster Keaton. Um <laughs> But uh, um, one of the other actors who was in the movie was talking about it, and he said, yeah, they were two old cronies from the old uh, days with um, Senate and stuff like that, and so he he purely trusted him. So they they play poker, But I thought that was really interesting. I love silent movies. There's so many of them that I love. Um, Harold Lloyd, um, the, you know, you get older and you know the name of something and it won't come to your tongue. The one where he's hanging off the clock. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, safety Last. Yes. Oh. Uh, that is one of the most brilliant movies, and people today don't know him, and it's really a shame. Yes, although that image is iconic, as it should be, because he actually is hanging off the hands of a clock on the feet of the ground without a safety net. Yeah. Yeah, and he was doing his, all his, he, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, Lillian Gish, all those people did their own stunts. Mary Pickford. Yes, that's right. I think I, people and they did a they 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 set the cameras they they helped with the mic they did all of the stuff I mean actors were purely a part of the team they weren't separate like they are now. Well, that was when it was uh, just a, a big group of people trying to make movies. It hadn't been organized into. Um, a business, there were no best practices, uh, it was just everybody trying to figure it out. In fact, the early days of uh, a film, you know, from uh, let's say 1900 to around 1920 or so, there were lots of female directors and writers. Women mm-hmm. were allowed yes. to have all kinds of uh, autonomy and positions of authority because it was a new field and there were no men to tell them no so they could just, you know, do it. And uh, there's some documentaries about that, you know, about uh, yeah. uh, female directors. And you see they were just as good, I mean, literally just as good as, as the men. You could not tell whether it was a woman directing an action sequence or a man directing an action sequence because 
they wanted to be exciting and, uh, you know, as innovative and take advantage of technology as best they could, just like anybody else who was, who was doing it. It didn't matter that they were women. So, I think uh, the last one of that era was Dorothy Arnzen. They, 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 they fired her when she was on vacation, the sneak. <laughs> uh, yes, well, that's when the... You know, uh, the old boys club uh, really started to, you know, uh, get uh, into positions of power and they started to get the studio system. But, you know, uh, in the long run, the studio system didn't work very well either. So, you know, those guys uh, had had their issues too. Yeah. uh, uh, By the way, the... Most famous Lillian Gish stunt is one that's just uh, incredibly uh, amazing to even think about. Uh, there's a movie called Way Down East, where you can see her jumping from uh, ice flow to ice flow, and uh, and then she finally manages, you know, uh, hopping from uh, one moving piece of ice to another to get herself to the shore. And then the camera cuts, and you see that you know there's a uh, a waterfall. <laughs> the ice is falling on the waterfall. Well, all of that was real. She was on a mm-hmm. real river with real ice that was about to go over a waterfall. It's like that's. I understand, you know, uh, making sacrifices for your art, but that's insane. That was, but she was. She actually was very interesting about everything. She said, um, "I saw her." At, uh, in an interview toward the end of her life, and she, I think it was Barbara Walters or somebody, some mm-hmm. it was a big interviewer, and uh, she says, so uh, she asked uh, for a great interviewer, it was kind of a dumb question, she said, what's the difference between when you were working in the silence and the studio system, and she said, she said, freedom, we could do anything and women were as equal to men and there were all kinds of minorities it was wonderful i mean she just she just it was i heard that i was i think i was like 16 or 17 when i saw that Mm. i just said oh damn i would love to have been part of that (laughs) yes yes not the ice jumping not the ice flow jumping Uh, right. Well, you know, the, there was wonderful freedom, but, you know, it, it was also uh, a dangerous time. Uh, fortunately, people didn't seem to get hit or hurt very often because it mm-hmm. seemed like though they were willing to take risks, they were all calculated risks. So it's it's yeah. like when you know, Buster Keaton has the entire building fall down and he happens to be standing right where the window is. So uh, he's perfectly fine. I mean, that had to be perfectly calculated. So when it fell, he'd be standing on the one spot that was safe. Isn't that amazing? Oh, my God. He was talking in a uh, biography about, autobiography, uh, you know, a documentary about him. And one of the things he mm-hmm. said was that he was annoyed with the direct modern directors, I think it was like the 60s, because they wouldn't let him do things he knew he could do. <laughs> His wife kept saying, but you're older now. And he goes, but I can still do it. I know what I'm capable of. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, yeah, that was sad uh, in a way that, uh, but it happens a lot that, 
amazingly talented performers will have a period where they get a lot of work and then, like anything and everything else, they go in and out of style and then they stop getting used. And it's terrible because, uh, you know, I mean, even people like Jackie Chan, who, you know, is a, a giant international star, and yet he doesn't work that much anymore, even though he's capable of doing stuff because, you know, he's gotten older and the, the industry and the public perception is changed. So, um, yeah. Uh, it's worse for women, David. It's worse for women. If you get to a older certain artists age, a woman... are also really good. <laughs> well, yeah, of course you get older, you get better. But no, what I was going to say, it's worse for women because they you get to a certain age and they're like, oh, you're not beautiful anymore, uh, you know, unless you do grandmothers at 40 or 50 uh, we won't hire you, even though they were still beautiful. I mean, you look at some of these women, and they were gorgeous. They were just older. <sighs> yeah. I mean, Judy well, Dent is still going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, 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 there's uh, examples of this. I'm trying to remember. There's a uh, a very popular TV actress, and uh, she's won a bunch of awards, and I think she's still working. And uh, Basically, the the key for her to keep working was when she turned 40 and somebody offered her a grandma role, she took it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she embraced it. Okay, if that's what they're willing to give me, that's what I, I, I'll do. And so she started doing that, and she working. And uh, she doesn't just play grandma roles anymore, but, uh, well, I think that... Uh, Christopher Lee said it best. Every actor has to work in a bad movie from time to time. The trick is to not be bad in them. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say to someone about uh, the late Christopher Plummer. He never gave a bad performance. He was in some bad movies, but he never, ever gave a bad performance. He was always brilliant. <laughs> yes, yes, and, and that's much harder to do when the rest of the project is having, you know, issues. Uh, how do you rise above that? That uh, that can be difficult. Yeah, I just but I find it fascinating. It. It, it I, I mean, lots and, of lots of really great actors do that. You know, I mean, you have to take if you want to keep working, got to take crap. Just the way right, it is. and if you don't keep working, then you won't be working at all, if that makes sense. In other words, the way it works in Hollywood is, like most of the things, if someone or something is not visible, you don't hear about them for a while, then other things start to take up that space, and you tend to forget about the thing you haven't heard about even if it's good. So that, that's why people have to take projects that aren't so good because they have to keep busy. Otherwise, people will forget about them. That's true. Do you, it, don't you think it's strange that there's an ageism, in, especially in Hollywood, about uh, it doesn't matter whether you're in front of the, or behind the camera. Once you hit a certain age, 
you can't get work. I was reading this really interesting article by one of the uh, writers for MASH, um, mm-hmm. award-winning, won an Good Emmy, and several Emmys, not just for MASH, but for other things. He, and he could not get work at all. He actually started putting his son's name on his work so he could get the scripts through. Yes, and that's an old trick that goes back uh, to even like the early studio days, you know, like the 1930s and 40s, that people would put different names on a script. Uh, For example, female writers would put male names on the the script or uh, a writer who was in trouble for whatever reason politically with the studio would have their script submitted under another name. And then, you know, there's the ageism thing, and then there's the, you know, blacklist and using pseudonyms for that. So, yes, that that's a common thing is for people to have pseudonyms. And, and not just in Hollywood, right? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everywhere in the industry. There's, 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 you know, uh, writers who uh, write under their own name and under pseudonyms or who can't write under their own name. Uh, that's getting much better now. But, yeah, you know, like uh, it, it, science fiction field has several female writers who many people thought were men because they used mm-hmm. a male pen name their whole career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's so weird, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is weird. It's how, not just how for that movies, one thing. it's for books. Mm-hmm. Well, like I'm I sorry, said, that's gotten interrupt. better. You can now have uh, female science fiction uh, you can have a woman submit a a manuscript for a science fiction novel, and they'll get published under their name. That's not uh, an insurmountable uh, barrier like it used to be. Uh, N.K. Jemison is probably the the most successful of the recent female science fiction writers. Although she also uses initials too, which is, you know, kind of a a traditional uh, way to, you know, uh, disguise the fact that uh, you might be a female is to use uh, uh, initials. Hmm? But uh, um, DC I think everybody knows that uh, N.K. Jemison is a, is a woman. <laughs> yeah. Since he's the president of science fiction writers. I, it's just It's just odd. There's some of the things that people have to go through. I mean, you know, they, I didn't know how long the blacklist went. I thought when that trial happened and they made a fool of McCarthy, and I thought that was it. It was over. But no, the blacklist went on for years after. It wasn't publicly known, but there were people that could not get work until people broke like Kirk Douglas and um people like that uh hired I can't think right now Otto uh hired yeah. people yeah Otto Preminger uh hired people who were blacklisted and just you know um and and put the real name on it um mm-hmm. 
you know, it but it was in the late 60s, early 70s that these people were still blacklisted until this stuff happened. Zero Mostel was blacklisted until, like, yeah. I think it was Mel Brooks put him in the producers. Um, right, well, outrageous. it's a great movie. <laughs> uh, in my opinion, it's a, a great movie uh, that's uh, focusing on one particular writer, Dalton Trumbo, and it's called Trumbo. And, I saw uh, that. I, great I movie. It. Yeah, and what? you know, uh it's a great movie uh and uh, and a great performance too. I mean, uh he's so entertaining cuz uh even though it's a serious movie, I mean, he's also a great comedian, so there's all these wonderful little comic moments amidst the drama. Yeah, I mean, that was Trumbull, though. I mean, it had to be somebody like that. I mean, it's like doing Oscar Wilde without the humor, you can't. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, well, I mean, think about it. I mean, also, um, there's a lot of them. Um, uh, Cole um, Porter. Uh, he was a very funny man. He had a very tragic yes. life, but he was a, and he was a, he's still one of my top favorite composers of all time. Yes. <laughs> well, the, the key about those things, or at least for me, one of the keys is to understand that a person may be living a tragic life, but to them, it is not a tragedy. They are just Mm -hmm. trying to get from one day to the next, uh, from one project to the next, and do the best they can and deal with the obstacles. They don't see it as a tragedy, and that's sort of the key, is that for them, they're just doing the best they can. Yeah. They they yeah. don't see it as a tragedy. That's something that we see and hopefully learn the lesson and say, okay, the next time I see somebody struggling, like that guy or that girl was struggling, and I'll help them. Yeah, you hope, we, we all hope that that will happen. It doesn't always happen, but we hope that people learn lessons. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, one of my favorite Harlan Ellison quotes is the reason we keep telling the same stories is you weren't listening the first time. Yeah, that's a great quote. I love it, yeah. He was, he was, he had a great mind. He was an interesting person. (laughs) Yes, a a very interesting person. And I'm I'm glad I had a chance to kind of know him as a person because um, his larger-than-life personality and reputation, his legend, made him seem like a more um, two-dimensional person. And, but in real life, you know, he actually was a, a loving, caring person. He just would not suffer fools gladly. And that. Um, yeah, but well, when I, you work you're in a, a field where there's lots of other people, <laughs> you know, you have to be nice to them or there's friction. Oh, yeah, that's true. I was going to say, you're a composer. Do you have favorite composers? I do have favorite composers. I'm going to start out by saying that I have a top ten list with 20 members on it. Top ten with 20 people. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I have favorites in in bunches. So in, in no particular order, except maybe chronological, 
um, George Frederick Handel, J.S. Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, Debussy, um, Stravinsky, Ravel, Bartok, um, Phil Glass, John Williams, um, John Adams. Uh, let's see, some other f- favorite composers. I know I'm leaving out uh, good people here. Um, um, uh, how about Cole Porter? Do you like him? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, well uh, I consider him a songwriter. Oh, that's a different so, group. <laughs> yeah, so uh, songwriters, yeah, there's, uh, you know, uh, Cole Porter, Harold Harlan, um, uh, Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein, um, um, Stephen Sondheim, um, uh, Gershwin. Uh, 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 well, Gershwin, you know, uh, with Hart and Gershwin with his brother Ira, um, Lennon and McCartney, um, Elton John, you uh, two. Uh, uh, How about Mancini? Uh, uh, well, Henry Mancini is kind of a uh, a special case because he was John Williams one of people who showed a new direction for what a composer could do. Um, mm-hmm. And <clears throat> like um, not quite in the Mancini worked by themselves. With Oh, I'm sorry. Well, see, Mancini has an equal reputation as a songwriter and as a film composer, and mm-hmm. that—that's very, very unusual. One or the other is the specialty, and to have um, basically any decent composer can write songs. Mm-hmm. Writing songs is less technically demanding than writing for larger ensembles. So every composer knows how to write for songs. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to write a great, super catchy song, but they can do it. Um, Mancini had uh, that gift for writing great, super catchy songs, especially when he was teamed with uh, Johnny Mercer. And uh, so this actually... uh, became uh, Mancini's hallmark is that he could uh, win the Oscar for best score and uh, the Grammy for best song of the year. And uh, that's extremely rare. Um, John Williams is also kind of similar where he could win the Oscar for best score and then win the uh, the Grammy for, for best soundtrack. Now, John is not... Uh, a, a, a prolific songwriter, but it's that same thing where uh, they are working in two different areas of music that ordinarily people don't do both, let alone do both at an extremely high level. <laughs> That's so, true. Uh, I, I have a question. So I love do you that. think it was because that um, they were working with great directors that they were able to blossom like that? 
Spielberg. It's 100% the director and producer together. And I'm not saying, you know, which has the greater influence because it depends on the production. But the director and the producer together are essential for the rest of the team to do their work, whether it's, uh, you know, actor or set designer, a composer, a songwriter, if it's the cinematographer, even the, the people doing the uh, publicity and, uh, and marketing they work with what the director and producer can put together, the team and the resources that they put together. So everybody working on the film depends on those two people to do their job well. And it's not an easy job to do well. And people don't get those jobs based on one qualification or another. It's a complex um almost case-by-case thing as to how someone gets to be the producer or director on on a big project. So uh, to say that it's it's them, yes, it's true. It, it has a lot to do with them, but it has a lot to do with them for every position on the film. Um, I think that the reason Mancini and Williams were able to achieve what they did is because they were incredibly lucky to work with directors and producers who actually appreciated and understood music. That's one thing. Now, I don't mean that they just like music, because almost everybody likes music. I mean people who understand something about the artistry that goes and the, the, the craft that goes into it, where they may have played music themselves or studied it in school. So they know about the old masters and about uh, symphonic music and chamber music and uh, opera and you know many different kinds of music, plus pop music, plus movie music. When you have that kind of diverse education and the background of the producer and or director, that really makes the composer's job and the songwriter's job not just easier, but more free. Like Lillian Gish was uh, talking about, where you have the freedom to do your best. If you do your best, but it's something uh, that the director or producer aren't familiar with. Like, uh, for example, let's say um, you're working with someone who loves uh, Taylor Swift, like I love Taylor Swift, and and Justin Bieber, and you do a sound design score for them. They might not appreciate that because that's a completely different aesthetic than those pop songs. So you need someone who has experience and appreciation for that particular kind of music to get them on to accept it. Uh, that could work in their film, but that could be something cool. So that's one thing, that they have to be really lucky to work with those people. For example, um, when Spielberg and John Williams got together, uh, it was on a, uh, a small movie... 
Uh, no. no, actually, uh, uh, that was a different movie. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, was different one. composer. Uh, and it's one of Spielberg's best movies, in my uh, opinion. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I love Duel. I've seen it uh, uh, several times. Uh, believe it or not, the music is by a guy named Billy Goldenberg, a, again, someone who was uh, popular at the time, uh, but uh, we don't remember him much uh, today. Um, the, uh, uh, what was the Williams first, first film was... Yeah, uh, the first movie with uh, Spielberg and Williams... Believe it or not, was a a Goldie Hawn. <laughs> yes, oh, a, a Goldie Hawn. I know that uh, one. Vehicle that was uh, done in the uh, early seventies, and it was an actual uh, theatrical film. Uh, Duel was a TV movie, but a really good TV movie that you could see in a in a movie theater, and it would be uh, uh, just as good. And. Uh, I don't so, remember the you know, name of it. I know what one you're talking about. It was one yeah, of those but the one that we're talking about movies. is called the Sugarland Express. That's it, Sugarland Express. And, yeah. And it's about it's a chase movie about uh, a, a young married couple who are on the run, and uh, mm-hmm. and John Williams did uh, a, a kind of um, country music influenced, uh, very Americana. Um, It's completely not the typical, you know, uh, John Williams sci-fi fantasy epic movie. Completely not that. And the movie was not a hit either. It wasn't a particularly big success. But he and Spielberg got along. And because they got along, Spielberg felt comfortable calling him uh, a year later when uh, he'd been given Jaws, which was a prime... Uh, you know, really plum assignment that, that he got, you know, for a guy in his early 20s to uh, be tapped to adapt a giant blockbuster movie. I mean, that's an incredible once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And it wasn't going well. It just wasn't. And it wasn't really Spielberg's fault. It was uh, the, the the visual effects uh, and, and mechanical effects people were not able at that time to produce shark a particularly down. good shark. <laughs> <laughs> so, darn uh, shark kept breaking down. <laughs> he talked yeah, about the darn shark <laughs> kept breaking down. So uh, they they couldn't get much footage of the shark, and the footage that they got, most of it wasn't very good. So um, Spielberg and Williams came up with the most brilliant solution we'll make it look like we never intended to show the shark. We'll keep the shark off screen and we'll just hint that he's there lurking with that pulsating maniacal motif in the music. And it worked beautifully. And unless you had been working on the movie, you would have no idea that that isn't what they intended all along. Because it worked so beautifully as a suspense film, right? But the reason why it works as a suspense film is because they couldn't get it to work as a straight-out horror film where you actually saw, you know, the monster. They couldn't show the monster. 
So they kept breaking down. Monster so. was on strike. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how that worked out. And, you know, then after that they were, you know, of course, fast friends for life because uh, he saved Spielberg's career by turning what was a flop into a movie that actually worked. And then it turned out to be, you know, uh, this massive hit with the soundtrack. So uh, that also, you know, changed William's life. Um, uh, it was the the it was three chords the the, the music for the shark. Is it three chords? That's what they I, I they just said like four chords or three chords. I don't remember how many. It was well, very it's really limited. just two notes. It's it's just the two da dum. That's it. And uh, because it's super simple, just two notes. It's possible to do lots of different things with it. Uh, so you know you can make it. Slow, slow, or you can make it getting closer, getting really closer, fast. getting closer, or it's right here, it's right here, it's right here. <laughs> and, you know, like gradually speeding it up to make it seem like it's getting closer and more intense, it's just brilliant filmmaking. Very simple, very effective. And that's the sort of thing that a composer might think of, but a songwriter wouldn't, because songs don't do that, right? Songs don't start out slow and get faster and faster. I mean, I guess there's some, you know, party songs that you play with kids that are a little bit like that, but basically it's not part of the songwriting world. Uh, was um, was the relationship between Henry Mancini and Blake Edwards similar to John Williams and Steven Spielberg? Uh, yes, uh, although they were closer in age, so they were m- more friends uh, of the you know similar age. Whereas you know Williams is considerably older than Spielberg, even though they're very good friends. Yeah, well, you can be friends with somebody that's not your age. <laughs> yes, that's uh, uh, that's. You true. have a lot of friends not your age. I have a lot of friends not my age. <laughs> I don't think it's a criteria. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. You're right. You're right. So, yes, uh, Mancini and uh, Edwards got along uh, well, and, you know, he basically became, Mancini became uh, Blake Edwards' go-to composer for his movies and his TV shows. And uh, that's the way that uh, that sort of thing tends to work, is that um, actors and directors and composers and directors and... uh, well, you know, basically every uh, every craft tends to uh, have certain people that are your regular folks that you work with most often. And uh, in a way, that's a good thing because you get uh, the kind of repertory company effect where everybody knows everybody else and they've worked together so they have a, a shorthand, they're efficient, they get along well, uh, and, and that's all good, but it also has the downside that it makes it a, a closed system where uh, there's, there's no way for somebody to audition or, you know, uh, get a chance to work with those people. It's a closed group. You know what my next question is? Do you have a mm-hmm. director that helped you? Well, Do you have I, a director uh, like that? Do you have a... 
I have some directors that are, are wonderful people. Uh, I, I love all of them, and I'm so glad that I had a chance to work with every director I've worked with and would work with any of them again anytime. Uh, all of that said, um, one of my favorite directors is uh, Kathy Carey, and uh, whenever she has a project, uh, she doesn't even have to tell me about it. She just has to say, I've got a project, and boom, I'm in. <laughs> just tell me when and where. And, and that's because she's such a good director and such a good person that I know whatever project she's come up with, it will be fun and challenging, and I'll be glad that I did it. So and, do you have uh, anything that's, that you're working on? I mean, I know that because of COVID, the industry sort of slowed down, but uh, do you have a project that you're working on? Well, I'm always working on projects. Uh, that's uh, that's for sure. Uh, I uh, actually produced a film and uh, got it out into the world and into the festival circuit right towards the beginning of the pandemic, and it's called Lights in the Forest 5, 5 with a Roman numeral V. And Lights in the Forest, you can check it out on YouTube. Uh, It's up there. It's uh, also being shown at festivals. And it was a music video shot on three continents. We used personal protective gear and social distancing. Uh, Everybody was tested. So uh, it was safe and there were no uh, health risks taken while we made the movie. Uh, you can't tell when you watch, though. And this was at the beginning before Hollywood had uh, established pro- protocols. So we figured this out on our own. And I'm, I'm very proud and happy that, we're, that Ashley Maria, the director and the, the wonderful team that she put together, did. So uh, check that out. Lights in the Forest. Uh, you can check it out under my name, David Raiklin, R-A-I-K-L-E-N, on, on YouTube. So uh, that came out uh, in 2020. And uh, then also, uh, I worked on this uh, a few months ago, and it's uh, just hitting the uh, the festival circuit now, is a uh, wonderful and important documentary called The Golden Rule. And... Uh, the Golden Rule was uh, a, uh, a multi-year project put together by uh, my friends uh, Diane Mellon and Stacy Stone. And uh, it's basically about the true story of a nuclear reactor that's within shouting distance almost, of downtown Los Angeles. And almost nobody knows about this except, of course, you know, for uh, the uh, some of the residents in Simi Valley who have, you know, heard about it uh, and because they they live in the, in the area and uh, they know it locally, but it hasn't really gotten much national attention, even though uh, it's been a, a nuclear waste cleanup site now for decades. 
Uh, they haven't quite managed to clean it up. And it's uh, actually kind of terrifying to, to realize that they were running a nuclear reactor for many years without adequate protection uh, in Simi Valley. And there are now houses that are built around that nuclear reactor site, uh, large housing developments. And many of the people who live there have no idea but the reason why the land there was less expensive is because it's got radioactive contamination. And uh, we also uh, discuss other, uh, uh, you know, nuclear reactor contamination sites like you know, Hanford and uh, there's one up in, in, in San Francisco. There's a lot of these uh, places where uh, there was research done like in the 40s and 50s and at the time, the locations were uh, considered, uh, you know, too far from where anybody was. Nobody was ever going to be around there, so they could be really sloppy. And then as real estate uh, values went up with population growth and expansion, suddenly that real estate uh, became super valuable and the company wanted to sell it. So uh, they did without actually uh, doing the proper... Um, I'm forgetting the word for it. Where you're supposed to uh, declare, reveal. What's what's the word for when you sell a piece of property? You're supposed to say all the the bad things that you know uh, about it too. You're supposed what's to be called? open. I don't know what I, I I forget what it's called, but they're just supposed to be open. Disclosure or something like that. Yeah, disclosure. If you know something about this that's not good, you're supposed to say it before you sell it to somebody. You can't hide that information. But they did hide that information. And it's the story of this uh, crusading scientist from UCLA who's spent like his 40-year career basically taking all of the scientific data that was done by the companies and by the U.S. government and showing that these sites actually aren't safe and that this information was not included in public hearings and in uh, the, the real estate agreements when the, the land was sold, et cetera. So there's gradually cleaning up being done. Uh, and we wanted it to be a hopeful uh, film, so I created some positive, hopeful music for the the spirit of environmentalists who are working to save the lives of people today and the, the children of of tomorrow. And I, I have a little bit of that uh, of that music from the Golden Rule. Uh, if you want to play that, well, we played it at the beginning. So you, they they were able to hear it, um, and at the end of this, we're going to play another one of your songs. Um, do you want to talk about that? Yes. Oh, and also uh, the score for this movie was done with live instruments. So it was uh, under uh, pandemic precautions, where everybody had to be socially distanced and wearing masks. Uh, you know the the flute player was in uh, their own isolation booth, so uh, the sound was perfect and they could play, but uh, they were, uh, you know, separated in, with their own ventilation system. Uh, and the uh, the musicians were just so happy to play together that even if they couldn't be in the same room, they could interact dynamically in real time. And uh, so we got some wonderful sounds. And uh, the uh, flautist is Sarah Anden. She's one of the 
the busiest flute virtuosi here in in Los Angeles, and she plays all the flutes. You know, the the silver sea flute plus alto flute and bass flute and piccolo and the wooden flutes. And uh, one of the uh, uh, locations in the uh, that's important to the the story of the uh, the golden rule. The, 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 Rule is uh, how um, the companies that owned the nuclear reactor and operated it, and then the companies that they sold it to, have, have been trying to avoid uh, responsibility for cleaning up the mess they made, or for cleaning up the, the mess that they uh, inherited, and. Uh, one of the ways that they uh, have been doing this, you know, to obey uh, uh, responsibility, is to say that uh, they don't have to clean up the site because close to a Chumash um, Indian. Um, historic sites with petroglyphs and, and inscriptions and uh, it, it has you know spiritual and archaeological value to the the Chumash tribe and, and, and to you know archaeologists and historians and there's a, a special category of uh, environmental law and uh, in um, our uh, national parks and preservation acts that if something is uh, a historic site that has um, material that's of historic value and it's uh, fragile or it might be damaged, that if there's also contamination at that site, that you don't have to clean up the contamination because it might damage or destroy the valuable historic artifact. So uh, what they've uh, so, done is that. claim that's ridiculous. That that the nuclear plant is adjacent to this um, Chumash Indian historic site, and therefore they don't have to clean up the nuclear reactor because it might affect the Chumash site. And I know that sounds that's like outrageous BS, but they're getting away with it. <laughs> it does. It sounds uh, incredible. One does not have anything to do with the other. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Well, uh, but it's like a loophole in the law that they're exploiting, and you know, at some point, uh, they will probably uh, have this uh, theory shot down that they don't have anything to do with each other. That they, you know, they're just confounding and and, and mixing those things up to uh, avoid responsibility for the nuclear plant, which has nothing to do with uh, with the Chumash site. But no. in any case, well, we have some beautiful footage. That's ridiculous. Uh, so uh, they're, they're actually hiding behind the site, basically. <laughs> yes. And they're hiding behind the uh, the ghosts of the Chumash Indians at this site. That's... Uh, but uh, so in any case, uh, oh, uh, the, the name of the, the uh, radioactive site is called the uh, Santa Susana Field Laboratory. 
And to people who live in the Simi Valley area, they may have heard about this because it's uh, an ongoing issue of people uh, in the area having, you know, outbreaks of cancer and you know, other uh, serious illnesses that are caused by uh, the toxicity that's in the ground there and uh, having uh, various officials coming up and, and saying that, uh, well, whatever's happening, it couldn't have happened because of this, and then having uh, the uh, citizen scientists saying, we have all this evidence that shows that it is, and you have to consider this. And uh, So that's going on. But uh, that's completely apart from we have the beautiful shots of the Chumash petroglyphs. It's, it's very peaceful and ancient and mysterious. We wanted to evoke the spirit of the Indians uh, and their goodness and wisdom and uh, have that contrast with the, uh, the dark sounds of the nuclear reactor and uh, uh, of the, uh, the greed and, and, and lies, which had to be, you know, played more uh, dark and uh, disturbing. And, and this could be more light and, and beautiful and maybe uh, hopefully at some, at some point even uh, spiritual. So you can take a listen to uh, Sarah Andin playing a, uh, a handmade uh, cedar Native American flute and evoking the spirit of the Indians. Um, we're actually at the end, so after we're finished chatting, uh, people will be able to enjoy the beautiful music. Um, David, do you have a website? Yes. Uh, you can catch me at David Raiklin, D-A-V-I-D-R-A-I-K-L-E-N, on Facebook or David Raiklin on YouTube, or you can go to davidraiklin.com. And uh, please check out my stuff. If you uh, like it, leave a comment or subscribe or uh, friend me, and uh, I'd be happy to to have you on board. And uh, we'll have more concerts coming up. You know, uh, the world is opening up, and uh, we're already scheduling concerts for the fall, live concerts, in addition to the film music. Um, Thank you for taking the time to chat with me, Dave. Thank you so much for inviting me, Sherry. You're the best. And so are your fans. Thank you.
And thank you for chatting with Sherry.